The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, mega-crushed, big-cap tech getting slammed yet again and now heading for another down week. Are the biggest stocks in the market now in even bigger trouble than we thought? We debate that with the Investment Committee this hour. Joining me today, Josh Brown, Brenda Vangelo, Kerry Firestone with me on set here, Steve Weiss. Let's go to the wall, check the markets, 12 noon in the east. And we do have losses. We have losses across the board. Dow's down 377. S&P's almost down 2%. The NASDAQ, though, that's where the focus remains. How many times have we talked about it? 2.5% decliner, 373 is the note on the 10-year. So Weiss, tech's now pacing for its sixth negative week in seven. NASDAQ's getting hammered yet again, and some of these biggest and most widely held stocks in the market are just no good lately. No, and, and I stay net short. And look, you had a, a brief relief rally yesterday but it was based on what was a desperation move in the U.K. to uh, forestall really a, a cataclysmic event, which is a major unwind of the financial system there. So big cap tech, if you're taking a look, let's put Apple aside now because I know we'll talk about it later. But you've got these companies for the first time. These are major growth companies making major moves in layoffs, cutting back projects. We saw that Google shut down Kitty Hawk uh, last week. Uh, that was kind of surprising because that's what they do. They look to the future. They invest. So while they're cutting heads and while they're looking at slowing growth rates, and this has nothing to do with regulation, that comes on and gets even worse, these stocks are no longer cheap. So like every other one, you're well, going to cheaper. see. They're getting cheaper because well, well, Alphabet, Microsoft, NVIDIA, new 52-week lows today. The XLK semis, new 52-week low today. Uh, these stocks in one month, Apple down 11%, Amazon down 12 Alphabet 11.5%, Microsoft down 11 Meta 14 NVIDIA 23 But here's why none of them are getting cheaper, because we haven't seen the reset in earnings. And I'm still looking at a target of $200 in S&P earnings, and you're not going to get to $200 without having these big cap tech stocks come down as well. So until the market comes to grips with that, I question as to whether these stocks are cheap enough. Okay. So let's leave it there. Kerry, um, to that point, right, do, do these stocks have much further to go? Uh, they're the most important if you look at the weighting of the, of the market. They matter more than almost anything else for obvious reasons. Well, they still have large market caps. And to the you know, extent that Steve is worried about earnings, 
earnings are coming across the board down. We, we know that's going to happen. But even with lower earnings, if you look at what's happened with a stock like Meta, which is down 65 plus percent uh, over the last 12 months, those lowered numbers are, are certainly at the point where the stock is trading at either 12 and a half times next year's earnings or 15 and a half or 16 times. So even with much lower numbers, you've got a multiple that is 30% below what most consumer staples are selling at. And I'm not suggesting that Meta doesn't have any problems or that the advertising market that Meta and Google are a, a large part of isn't problematic. A problematic, but Google sells for 16 times earnings. Maybe it's 18 times earnings, but that is so much lower than where it was. And these companies are still growing faster than the economy, growing faster than almost all the consumer stocks out there and most industrials. And so you look for bargains where you can find them. And these stocks have to be uh, attractive to some value buyers. And and the growth of people who don't own them should be buying them now because their growth rates, while down over the next year, are still going to be faster than than the uh, GDP well, and the S&P is going to grow. You look at the forward P.E. of Apple, Josh, you made the point yesterday in overtime, a a even as a shareholder who loves this company, that it's you can make the argument that Apple is too expensive here. Well, you can't you cannot make the argument that Apple is cheap. So as as I as I discussed yesterday on any metric, you want to uh, look at this stock and and pick the top six or seven valuation metrics. It's not cheap. The bigger question is, um, so so what is the punishment for that? Well, we see this is a stock that has outperformed the market for the last nine months year to date. And now it's underperforming. It's worse today than most of its brethren. And, uh, you know, it's just I guess to me, it's just not that surprising that you would see a stock like this have to eventually catch down. So today you have Apple down four percent, Microsoft only down two percent, Meta only down two percent. Those stocks have already come in a lot. So mm -hmm. it makes sense to me that now it's Apple's turn. We've seen this repeatedly, by the way, uh, in, in the last you know 10 years in market corrections. Apple has been very stubborn. It very rarely is at the vanguard of a move lower in the market. But eventually, they get to it. So I think that's what you're seeing right now. I don't think anybody should be terribly surprised by it. No, I mean, the downgrade today from Bank of America uh, was the catalyst for, uh, I think, today's move. Downgraded to neutral. That's from buy. Price target to 160 from 185. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with expected slowdown, Brenda, in consumer spending. And that Apple's going to take a hit as a result of that. You already had the report yesterday questioning whether you know, they were going to increase production of the new iPhone, suggesting they were not. So now you've got two days in a row of negative uh, reports coming out about Apple. Right. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, Apple's a consumer products company, but it's also a global consumer products company. So that, you know, when you think about where does their revenue come from? Well, mm -hmm. about 60 percent comes from overseas. So even if we can all get comfortable with the U.S. consumer, given the strong, strong job market, savings, et cetera, 
I think we have to look to what might tr be transpiring internationally and also the strength of the dollar and how that plays into Apple's products being affordable um, right here and now. So I think there is reason to be concerned um, that they are going to be experiencing a slowdown and perhaps not have as much of a great response as everybody had hoped uh, to the, uh, the 14 Pro. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, Apple is an incredibly stable company with tons of cash on the balance sheet. So there's something to be said for that. But it doesn't mean that it can't trade at a lower multiple than it's trading today. So I agree that it is uh, still trading at a little bit of a rich multiple relative to a lot of other names, mm -hmm. particularly if you look outside of large cap in the U.S., you know, small and mid cap stocks collectively are trading near trough valuations. Now, I get it, 23 our earnings are likely coming down, but nevertheless, they're just in general a lot cheaper mm -hmm. than what we're seeing in large cap. You know, overall, Weiss, you mentioned it's one day relief rally we had yesterday um, as some of those financial conditions loosened um, over, over in the UK. Credit Suisse is in your camp. They say the worst is yet to come. Higher rates combined with ongoing shocks to lead us to cut GDP forecasts. The Eurozone and UK are in recession. China's in a growth recession and the US is flirting with recession. Wolf says don't jump back into stocks until fixed in commodities and currency markets stabilize. We don't know if they're going to stabilize soon. Um, when you have a 30 basis point drop in the in the yield on the 10 year yesterday and the types of moves that we've had recently in in bonds, it's not supposed to be that way. That's not stabilization, no, to say the not. least. And, and you're not, you know, fixed income investors or, or treasury investors specifically aren't used to the type of volatility that they're seeing. So that's destabilizing to the psyche and to the strategies that you have out there. Look, you know, Brenda pointed out currency. That's a big factor, too. So you're going to see major adjustments just from currency alone, then throw in the slowing economy. But I, I dispute that China's just in a growth recession. They've, their property bubble has finally burst. You can never believe the numbers coming out of there. You still can't believe them. And property drove so much of their economy in terms of construction, et cetera. So China's a complete mess. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the point here is that the, the world is a mess. Yes. And the U.S. may be the best house in a bad neighborhood, uh, but even it needs a, a makeover at, right. at, at this particular time. So, but why do you have to be invested in the market now? Why can't you buy treasuries at a 4% yield, short-term treasuries? You know, that makes the most sense. And the volatility in the pricing goes away because you get your principal back. I know, but most people don't have the luxury or the flexibility to not be invested in the market. They've been invested in the market. You're not telling, yeah. you're telling people to sell everything they have today? No. No, I'm not. Of I'm course. Not. I, I think there are certain, well, look, you know, if you didn't pay taxes, I still think you can take money off the table, frankly. Um, instead of waiting for it to come back, because you are going to lose capital. And keep in mind, for each move like we see today, you've got to extend. And we don't hear people talking about in a year you'll make money. Now they're talking about in three to five years. So, or ten. Or, so what's that Druckenmiller yesterday suggested that the Dow's not going to be anywhere higher in ten years. Yeah, I, I don't think that's correct, and I don't have to go out that far. I don't think it's going to be much higher in a year. There'll be bounces here and there, but you're not going to get back to a bull market. And the angst you're going to feel in the interim and the capital declines you're going to see, particularly for older people, there's no reason for them to be in the market here. I mean, unless, right, the, the, the one other point to make is that in, unless the U.K., you know, pivot or intervention or buckle, 
uh, under pressure is a precursor of, of what may in fact happen here if financial conditions get tight enough and if the situation gets to the point where our central bankers have to do something. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us now. Uh, man, so you went there with Mester, uh, Steve, because the, the, the criticism has really ratcheted up that they don't know what they're looking at, or if they do, they're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, that's out there as a persistent criticism. And, and, and Scott, we do hear uh, criticism of the Fed from the places where I guess the Fed sort of wants to hear it from. You hear it from the housing market, you hear from real estate, you hear it from equity traders. Um, but Loretta Mester, I, I, I asked her that question relative to, you know, I put in the context of Jim Cramer, you know nothing or whatever it was yeah. that he said back in 08. And I said, you're not paying attention. And I mean, she shot back that she is paying attention. I guess we should give her a, a listen here. Well, I can just tell you the, the, the contacts we talk to and our board of directors and we gather a lot of information. That's not the perspective they have. In fact, you know, they are still concerned about high inflation. They're still concerned about the mismatch in the labor market, which is adding to cost pressures. And so that reconnaissance tells us that we still have inflation up. I think there's definitely been a slowdown in the housing market, which is to be expected given where mortgage rates have gone because we're tightening financial conditions. And that's the mechanism through which demand is moderating and hopefully getting into better balance with supply so that those price pressures can be contained and then put on a downward path. I guess the bottom line, Scott, is nobody's really happy about what the Fed feels it has to do here, but some are considerably unhappier than others. I guess it's interesting, you know, where they're where they're getting their information. Right. I mean, she not that we this is a great revelation. Right. They talk to corporate leaders uh, all the time. They, they look at data, but they talk to corporate <coughs> leaders. They pick up the phone. They talk to members of boards of directors. But maybe they should just go to the gas pump and take a look yeah. at, at, at what's happening there. And in other areas of the, the commodities complex that that, you know, even those who suggest that. Um, the Fed should do more or keep going, acknowledge that inflation has probably peaked, right? I mean, Ken Griffin said in inflation look, looks like it has peaked, but he says they should stay the course. You know, Scott, the, the shoe's a bit on the other foot here, and I'm not saying you're that guy, but there were people out there that said the Fed was ignoring food and energy prices. Remember that whole spiel there that they were ignoring the all-important food and energy prices? Well, that's sort of what the Fed is doing on both sides of the equation here. The, the Fed, if this were a food and energy problem, the Fed would look right through it. The problem has been that the inflation problem is more widespread than that. It's in services. It's in housing. The salient questions, I think, for the Fed here are twofold. One is, what inflation indicators are they looking at and how much are they lagged what's happening in the real economy? And then the second indicator is, what inflation number are they using to plug into their model 
to tell us what a restrictive rate is. Uh, Loretta Mester likes this idea of three, three and a half percent using the uh, summary of economic projections from the Fed and saying I need to be a percentage point above that to be restrictive. That's where that four and a half comes from. If there's a lower number, if the number is lower for inflation, then the restrictive number can be lower. Like I said, Scott, you can argue with the Fed all you want and you can take a position contrary to what the Fed is, but you have to have a different theory of inflation that works for you that's hey, different Steve. from the one the Fed has. And I'm not saying who's right. Hey, here, here's, a theory, here's a theory of inflation. This year, the Fed has knocked $10 trillion worth of wealth out of the stock market. The bond market's probably even bigger. $10 trillion going by um, the, the Federal Reserve's own accounting of who owns mutual funds and who owns stocks uh, per household. That's a really big blow to the wealth effect. The problem is 89% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of households. So that's not very that widespread. That would be my response, Josh. But that absolute. It's not but a that big, absolutely. That absolutely. Hang on. Hang on. I'm almost there. That absolutely will, will take a big chunk out of the wealth effect. It just takes time. It's on a lag. People, people are still spending like there's no tomorrow at restaurants, at the mall. We know that empirically. But coupled with the fall in home prices, now you're hitting a little bit closer to home for, uh, for the middle class. Again, this yep. also works on a lag. But then throw in, uh, then throw in a 40% decline in gasoline prices. And now all of a sudden... You've got lower inflation in the thing that was killing lower income households. You've got a negative wealth effect from housing, which hits the middle class harder than anyone else, not as important to wealthy people. And you beat the crap out of the stock market for 10 months straight. I think that those data points ought to weigh as heavily on the minds of Fed heads as any other uh, data points that you could mention. What are your thoughts? Uh, my, my thoughts are to throw it right back at you, Josh. And you know I got deep respect for your thinking on all these issues. But what exactly do you want the Fed to do here? You want it to stop now at three, three and a quarter when it believes that it is still actually no. below a real rate? It's not a real rate. Should it go to four? Should it go to four and a half? My personal belief is I think the Fed ought to get to four and look around for a little bit. But, you know, uh, uh, Powell yeah. kind of shut that down more or less saying, Four or five was the was the uh, was the destination. I think you can say all the things you're saying and all those things are accurate. But then ask yourself a question. What justification is there for a two percent Fed funds rate in this world today or even a three percent Fed funds rate? That's fine. You can say all those things. But tell me what you okay. think the Fed. How much credibility will the Fed? How, how much credibility will the firm will, will the Fed have earned back if they trigger a financial crisis in the fourth quarter of this year? How much of that credibility that they think they lost? That's will a they, great question, will they Scott. Then I, I, have I will 10%, tell you, twenty percent. I, I will tell you, no, I have, I have an even more dire outlook on that, Josh. I don't know that even the Federal Reserve itself would survive another reversal here. If they ended up reversing after a reverse course on policy in a financial crisis, I believe the whole concept of the Federal Reserve would come under question. Why? Why is there going to be a financial crisis? The banks are in better shape than they've ever been, right? Their, their risk is way down. I don't understand why people talk about, you know, Labenthal said also, hey, the market, you know, is going to bottom when there's a financial crisis. And there's not going to be one. That was the last. Chaotic moves in international currencies. I don't know, Steve. 
Steve, I, I, I think there's a, there, there's a lot of moving parts, and parts are moving very fast right now. Um, I, I hope you're right about that. I think the Fed is checking its channels. But just look at what happened in England. That's really the model you want to look at, which is the Bank of England was doing okay in terms of quantitative tightening, uh, asset sales, raising rates. And then the fiscal side came along and said, no, nah, we got a better idea. We're going to increase deficits and cut taxes. That kind of thing can happen any place. you got to slip up when things are very, very tight then you can have well, an issue so of dislocation. To, to that point, though, then, do you, um, wow, it sounds like you're somewhat, even if it's very small, uh, simmer, uh, thinking about the, the idea of, of some kind of a crisis induced by you know, wherever, right? I mean, um, you saw what happened, as you said, in, in the U.K. Do you think what happened there and what might happen over the next few weeks anywhere could influence what the Fed's policy will be at the next meeting? I, I, I don't think so, as long as the administration sort of stays on board. I looked at what uh, uh, Undersecretary Adeyama said yesterday at, at our Delivering Alpha conference. It was, you know, more or less the right words. We can debate whether or not the policy is right. I mean, I think that you could have a major bond rally if, for example, and a stock market rally, if the Biden administration came forward and said, you know what, we need to address deficits, we need to address spending, we need to be more austere in, in, these, in these contexts. That would create a major equity rally right now because it would really show that the fiscal side is on board the monetary policy side. I think being neutral to slightly bad, which is where the Biden administration is right now, is kind of okay. But going the other way, which is what England did, look, Scott, if the trust government came forward to, uh, at this moment and said, we're going to delay our plans for tax cuts, you could have a major rally, not only in the UK and Europe, you could have a major rally in the US right now. What, what it did is it put people on edge to say, you know what, this is all very tight. We're trying to thread a needle here, get rid of inflation without something breaking. And yeah. you just have to worry, Scott, when you have these kind of movements that something can break. No actual indication right now that's where we are. There is some tightness, some, some illiquidity in certain parts of the fixed income market. You just got to watch it. You just got to be careful. Yeah, no and that's something that should, I think, in my mind, uh, 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 you know, attenuate the Fed's hands here. It got away with 375s. I don't know if they'll get away with another one. They might. They may go for it. The biggest risk is in the private credit markets because they've taken over the banks used sure. to go. So to me, if you look for financial crisis that could start, it's there. It's not similar to what happened in the UK. That was driven by pensions at three yeah, or six times Yeah, but it's just always where you never see it. Uh, absolutely, that's part of the problem, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Always where you, know, you no never No disagreement. See it. That's why it's a surprise, and that's why it has the impact it has. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, that's another question I asked Griffin about, Ken Griffin yesterday, about the idea of contagion, which he didn't um, seem to be too worried about that at this particular moment anyway. Uh, Steve, thank you as always. Good stuff. That's Steve Leisman, our senior economics Great supporter. conversation, guys. Thank we're you. We're going to take a break. Uh, when Thanks. we come back, we're making a lot of moves, the committee is today, even in this volatile market. We're going to reveal their latest buys and sells. We'll debate them next. We're back. Two minutes. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about some moves that the committee is making today. Brenda, I'm starting with you because, boy, one jumps out to me. It's Adobe. You bought it. Gutsy, gutsy, gutsy in this kind of market. We did. Well, if you look at Adobe, it's really trading all the way back to where it was back in, in uh, 2019. So we think when we look at this company, their products are industry standard. And that's important because there are incredibly high barriers to entry. The management team has done an excellent job of making acquisitions that have increased their total addressable market over the years. They just announced another one that the market is not so happy about with Figma acquisition, given its size, it's $20 billion. But we're giving them the benefit of the doubt and think that this is also an opportunity for the company to continue to grow its addressable market. Um, and especially with valuation where it is down here at 18 times forward numbers, we think this is a compelling opportunity. Uh, within the market today. I'll get to the stock that you sold in just a second, but Carrie, I see that you bought more Adobe. Yes, we did. Uh, so I agree with what Brenda just said. We bought Adobe for the first time a couple of months ago, and then, of course, they made the Figma acquisition, and the market came way down at selling for 18 times forward earnings, and we just added to that position. So I, we agree that it's a stock that's very cheap, has a great market, big market share, now bigger. And this was a good point for Brenda to enter and for us to buy more. Before I go back to Brenda for a sale, you have two new buys as well. So you are looking to, to you know, get some action in the market, Align Technology and First Republic. Yeah. So we're buying those two stocks today. We used to own First Republic for years. We own that stock maybe for 10 years. And we sold it in 2021 at about 27 times earnings, and it's 14 times earnings today. It's U.S.-based, of course, so there's not that much FX that's going to hurt them. They're obviously a mortgage um, business for the high end. I mean, they're bankers to the rich of America, and they have 5% market share. They can gain a lot of market share. That's not immune, of course, to problems with the market and the wealth effect, as Josh alluded to. But at this price, at this, at this very attractive price, we think that a company with as high-quality banking business and, and very, very low write-offs, if you mm -hmm. look at their history, is a very you know, high-quality, attractive purchase today. Okay. So that was one. And the other, Align, Align is down you know, from 700 to 200, I mean, roughly. Um, it's the liner business, Invisalign. It's um, exposed to China, which has been a problem. And, of course, discretionary spending was big in the pandemic and then has come off. But it sells for about 20 times forward earnings now. It's gaining market share. It's really changing the, um, the way in which the whole dental market addresses um, issues through digital analysis, the scanning system that they um, that they promoted. And we think this was a, a great entry point. We've watched hmm. this stock for a long time, and this is the first time okay. we bought any shares. Brenda, back to you. Uh, you sold Sherwin-Williams. 
We did, and we continue to like this company. But when we look at the end market, the housing market, we just think on a relative basis, looking at, you know, should we own Adobe or Sherwin-Williams here? We just think that going forward, it's going to be a little bit of a slog uh, for a housing market that's likely to remain uh, weak uh, for potentially some time as interest rates have continued to climb. Um, so in our view, this is an excellent time in the market to be looking for opportunities to swap positions uh, when you think about you know what's gonna what's gonna have a better catalyst over the next couple of years in our view. Mm-hmm. It's be uh, relative to Sherwin Williams. Carrie, um, speaking of housing and getting negative on it, you sold Remax. So Remax, of course, is a broker. It's small cap stock. It hasn't performed well in the very strong housing market that we had, and now we're entering a weak housing market. And we just thought it's best to cut the position and redeploy the assets elsewhere. Why'd you sell CME? Uh, well, you know, CME has been great for us. It's held up well in a, in a volatile market. It, it hasn't been uh, a wonderful stock, but it's been a hedge uh, against some of the other names we own. And we just think that the market volatility, which has been extreme over the last 10 months, we, we may be uh, uh, about, we hope, to end that phase of the market action. And as a financial, we just decided to swap that right into First Republic. So it was um, an even swap. All right. We're going to take a quick break, uh, stay over the stock sell-off today. We'll talk to Bank of America's Chris Heisey. He's our headliner today. We'll do it next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. I'm Christina Partsnevelis. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Tropical storm Ian is exiting Florida, but it could intensify into a hurricane again before making landfall for the second time on Friday. The National Hurricane Center is issuing a hurricane warning for the entire coast of South Carolina. Forecasters are predicting more dangerous storm surges and winds across the southeastern United States. And this comes as millions of Floridians are left without power and must assess the damage the storm brought on. Sanibel and Captiva Islands are cut off from the Florida mainland after Ian's storm surge washed away three parts of the Sanibel Causeway. Officials estimate 98% of the residents in that particular county remain without electricity. South Korea's military saying North Korea fired two ballistic missiles towards the sea just hours after Vice President Kamala Harris left South Korea. This was the third round in a series of launches by North Korea this week as it continues to accelerate the pace of its weapons testing. Scott, back over to you. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelis. Let's bring in our halftime headliner now. Chris Heisey, he's the chief investment officer, Merrill Bank of America Private Bank, joins us once again. It's good to see you. You as well, Scott. Yeah, um, you know, things are mostly the same as they were the last time we spoke. Uh, they're obviously unsettled. Are, are we due? Are we going to get more than a one day bounce like we did yesterday? Because we're giving a lot of it back today. Yeah, it really doesn't appear that way. You know, we're still in that. We, we've talked about this before, that reset period, which we, we, we tabbed at about a six to nine month reset. 
and I know that everyone's been talking about this, but it, you know, it first started with valuation. We're about to get some earnings resets coming up in the earnings announcements recently. Some of the top-down strategists have already taken their their estimates down for next year, but the bottoms up has yet to really materially change. And then I would say this: we've seen more outliers in this last six or seven days. And I know, you know, it's tough to point to any one week, but some of the outliers going from negative real yields recently to positive real yields in in this sharp of a move, you know, is arguably never been seen. Uh, secondly, you know, the Bank of England's actions at a time when inflation's high. That's a tough call as well. Obviously, they have switched to financial stability from inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's so many parts of this list, but I keep pointing to this. And this is something that uh, is tough to answer at this point. But could this time, Scott, could this time be the fact that the Fed put, the proverbial lifeline, is actually a Fed put for the bond market relative to the equity market? I mean, yields are very attractive here. Well, we've heard people say that, including Ken Griffin yesterday at Delivering Alpha. We just showed one of your headlines saying that we're only halfway through this reset. Um, Does that imply that you you think stocks have a a lot lower to go before the reset is complete or or not? We're still of the belief that we've got, if you're thinking 12 months, if you have at least a 12-month you know, hat on right now. We're still of the belief that your downside risk to upside is relatively equal. Will we, you know, is the path of least resistance down still? It appears that way. Um, But it's very difficult to ring the bell and say, ultimately, if the Fed says, if the Fed literally says, we're going to wait and see because inflation's coming down at the turn of the year, two-year yields peak out, the dollar peaks, uh, risk on across the asset management industry is going to be what people will be talking about, in our opinion. And therefore, it's tough to know when that bell is going to ring. So we think there's equal risk to the downside upside on a 12-month basis. Therefore, we're neutral. We want to be on guard. But but for those that have excess cash, we're, we're looking for opportunities come the turn of the year, early first quarter, to begin to think about that next business cycle. Steve Weiss, who's sitting in front of me, thinks that earnings are going to be $200. The estimates are a lot higher than that. Right now, does that sound too dire to you or about right? Or what's your own projection? Yeah, that's spot on with B of A Global Research, uh, which uh, has our earnings forecast at about 200 as well, which is about an eight, you know, call it an 8% decline ending this year, somewhere around 219 to 222. Uh, The rest of the street, um, I I, I know you, you all have seen this too. The the range of earnings estimates from so-called 150, 160 on the downside to 240 on the upside. I don't know if I've ever seen that big of a range uh, across the you know the industry. Same thing with projections for the S and P. So when you get that wide of projections, um, I you know I think neutral makes sense. Wow, I mean, if you guys are in line 200, and you what's your multiple on that? So this is this is the great debate. Um, you know, multiples uh, need a catalyst, right? Behavioral psychology enters in. So I don't know what the exact multiple is, but if if you, you know, we could debate whether the 100-year multiple is 16 or 17 times. If you just stick to what multiples have been during similar times, 16, 17 times trailing, if you look back, you know, uh, that's why many strategists are suggesting S&P goes to 3,200. I don't know what the number is, but I do know that with, you know, 3,200 to where we are, arguably 3,650 right now in that range, mm-hmm. um, opportunity set widens out significantly for the long-term investor. 
and, and we'll take advantage of that. Yeah, uh, you and others um, who've suggested they would do the same thing if the market sunk to that level. Chris, good to see you as always. Take care. That's Chris Heisey joining us today. Crude oil is on pace for its first negative quarter in 10, a new Barris Street note out today on the entire commodities complex. We'll tell you about it. We'll debate it next. Decidedly down day for stocks and Credit Suisse thinks it's about to be decidedly downward for commodities. They say they see enough technical evidence to change commodities as an asset class to negative. So they go from crude oil, industrial metals, gold, Josh and gold. They say it's already confirmed double top. We expect further weakness at 1600. Industrial metals also remain in clear downtrends. Brent crude change our three to six month outlook on oil to negative. What, what do you think about this call? Well, I mean, gold is maybe the worst asset class I've ever seen. This is the this is the <laughs> commodity that's supposed to, quote, unquote, protect us from inflation. We just had literally the worst inflation in four decades, and gold couldn't even get out of bed. So put but put that aside. So that doesn't work. Um, big picture, commodities, let's be careful because we know that oil demand, even in the worst recessions, doesn't really fall off quite as much as you might expect it to. Uh, gasoline demand, it really is not a one-for-one -one relationship. It's not at all linear. Keep in mind, financial markets are very different from physical markets. Financial markets like bonds and stocks and interest rates, these things are uh, driven by expectations. Physical markets are driven by supply and demand. So. I don't know that it's just quite so simple as, well, the technicals and the, and the economics tell us uh, that such and such commodity is about to do blank. There are too many other dimensions involved. So I do like oil into the end of the year. And I, I would point out there have been previous situations where we've had economic slowdowns where these stocks have worked very well. I also like utilities. So I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to translate that commentary mm -hmm. into a trade per se. What about you, Weiss? What do you think of this call? Make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, look, most commodities are dollar-denominated. Dollar has gotten very strong, so that makes them all more expensive. And energy was clearly the most crowded trade there was. So it makes sense that it comes off because so many people in crowd trades get in at the top, and they're the first ones to go and pressure the prices as they panic out. Depends which one, though. I mean, <clears throat> true. Win winter literally uh, is, is coming, Ho hopefully not yeah. verbally. Um, I think gas can pop. Right, Nat gas is at below seven dollars. Yeah, so you got to be careful along all of the commodity energy lines to right. say that okay, maybe they have peaked. Nat gas could be seven bucks this winter. I think it could be. I think it could be higher, definitely. Uh, but this is a risk-off environment, and that includes all risk assets. And commodities are some of the biggest risk assets out there. So again, I, I advocate being patient and waiting for a term rather than catch the bottom. All right, straight ahead, one of the oldest investing strategies starting to look good again in this market, at least according to one big time investor. That debate's next. Well, the debate has been picking up lately, including on this program about the future of the 60-40 portfolio. I asked 
Ken Griffin, the billionaire investor, about that yesterday at CNBC's Delivering Alpha conference. Here's what he told me. 60-40 portfolio looks much better today. Really? Than at any point in recent time. Why so? We've got 10-year bonds at 4%. Right? When 10-year bonds are, are at 75 basis points or 1%, there's no real upside to the bond in a moment of a recession that's often characterized with deflation. Mm. But now with, with the 10-year bond at 4%, if you go into a downturn and inflation heads back towards a, a one-handle, all of a sudden those bonds are worth a fair amount more than they are today. That's a win in your portfolio. That's in the green when your equity portfolio is likely to be in the red. Kerry, get the first crack at this one. Well, Obviously, we've got much higher bond yields, and when the market is going down, everybody looks for a place not to lose money. So it comes to mind, buying a treasury, buying a CD, we've done some of that here, uh, not widespread, but we had zero bonds, really, for, for people. And so we've started to incrementally add places where people have had too much cash lying around, not getting any interest. And you can get 3.4% for three months, 35 on CDs and the Treasury yields up to 4%. Yes, of course, in a really tough environment for stocks. I, I would agree with that. Whether 60-40 is the right mix. I mean, that's going pretty far from saying nobody wanted a bond last year and now let's put 40% into fixed income. That's, that's a big difference. So mm -hmm. I think that that advisors can ease in and start to add that. And definitely it's a way to, to keep your capital. What do you think, Weiss? Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's been in the hot seat for a long time, 60-40 portfolio. I, I like Ken's take on it. I mean, I, I'm still not going to be in equities, but I've been buying bonds, and I do think they'll be green, and I think that's the best place to put capital right now. Josh? Um, we've written like a 1,000 blog posts and articles about this topic, and you'll, you will hear people say the death of the 60-40 pretty much every four or five years um, you could set your watch by it. Sometimes it's because they think the stock portion won't work, and then other times it's because they think the bond portion won't work. I'll just point out that um, if you look at an ETF like BIL, for example, right now, it's got $18 billion in assets. It's basically the shortest-term uh, treasury bill ETF you can own. Um, look how well that that has held up in the face of all of the volatility in every other asset class this summer, this fall, this year. So it's like a question of not yes or no bonds, what duration? And where do you want your risk in bonds? Do you want them from the credit side because uh, you're reaching for yield and things like high yield or, uh, God forbid, uh, leverage loan market or whatever? Or do you want your risk in the form of duration? I think this year it paid to take no risk, be as short-term as possible as rates exploded higher these short-term treasury bills rolled over very rapidly. And before you knew it, you had a 0% income um, you know, style return. Now, all of a sudden, 3%, 4%, and climbing. So there's always a place for fixed income in a portfolio. But a lot of the, the answer about how much is not going to depend on something somebody says on TV or on a stage somewhere. It's going to depend on your own individual circumstances, your own risk tolerance, and your own time horizon. Mm -hmm. All right. Semis, they're trading around 52-week lows, including Micron, which is set to report its results in overtime tonight. The committee debating that group next.
All right, welcome back. We're watching shares of Micron here falling today. Uh, that company reports earnings after the bell. I was just looking at the price declines in, in shares of like NVIDIA, AMD, uh, and the like. We told you about NVIDIA hitting a new low. Brenda, if I know you own NVIDIA. Um, outside of that one, if you own NVIDIA, you must be watching Micron, uh, an important name like that, pretty closely. Absolutely. But I think with this sector, with the chip sector in general, there's a lot of bad news that's already out. We know there are a lot of inventory problems um, and, you know, and market slowing in many cases. Uh, so bad news is out. I think if you're going to be in the group, it's best to look for names like an NVIDIA, very high quality, differentiated company within the sector. Stock is down to more than 60 percent this year. So I think those are the kind of opportunities to consider um, with this sort of why she, you used to own Micron. I did. I did. And, you know, people think it's a growth stock. It's not a commodity stock. Sure, they have some growth products, but they're very sensitive to the economy. So, look, when I sold, uh, when I sold the stock, uh, which was higher, I said, man, am I making a mistake? And clearly I wasn't. In fact, any of the semis that I sold, uh, which were down big time, Skyworks down from 210 to 140 and sold it. Look at it now. Cor Corvo, the same thing. So they look very cheap, but... So do a lot of things, and I'm not sure that's where people go right now. Josh, quickly from you on Micron. I know, again, you, everybody knows you as an NVIDIA guy, but this matters today. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not the axe on, on Micron. Steve knows that name way better than me. I would just say, as part of my barbell approach, starting to get a little bit more bullish after having been bearish the whole year, like the semis are right in my crosshairs. I started buying SMH. Uh, which is the semi-index ETF for the first time in, I don't know, maybe five years. Uh, all of these stocks have been absolutely hammered. The, the median stock in that index is down like 45%. It's 2008 for the semi-stocks. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't call a bottom here. They don't look great technically, but I'm okay right here starting to build a position. If and when things rebound, this group is going to go crazy. Mm. Carrie, what do you think? I think you have to wait. They're still cyclical. I like NVIDIA as a company. Chart doesn't look good. None of them look good. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. And we'll do final trades next. See you in overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. Adam Parker's with me today. We already mentioned we have Nike and Micron earnings. Those are going to be critically important, so I hope to see all of you then. Top financial advisor, Rich Saperstein is on set with us, too, giving you uh, his financial advice, the valuable financial advice uh, that he has. So we'll see you all in a few hours. Steve Weiss, final trade to you first. It's a sale of a stock that you had. Yeah, Volkswagen and Porsche. I, I sold all of them. Sold them earlier in the week. And here's the bottom line. I was right on the company analysis and just dead wrong on the stock analysis. And the stock analysis is what matters. Uh, the value is tremendous. And then the reason I sold the rest today is CarMax. I've been looking for autos, uh, for sales of autos to decline just as they're building up inventory. Worst of both worlds, we got CarMax news. So I'm out of it. Just not a good investment at all. Yeah. All right. Um, Carrie, how about you? Final trade today for us. Booz Allen Hamilton, it's BAH. It's a defense contractor consulting firm. Uh, we have a sense that in November at the midterms, the Republicans will take back the House. That's positive for the Defense Department. And it's not a particularly recessionary okay. type company, not so cyclical. Brenda? Going with Salesforce, this is another company with a lot of recurring revenue. 
the stock price is back down to where it was in 2019. Management just reiterated full year guidance, revenue guidance for this year, looking for 17% growth. We think it's worth a look. Josh Brown. The overall market took out the July low, the June and July lows, this, this last downturn, but oil and gas stocks did not. Uh, and the buyers came in exactly where they should have. So IEO is my final trade. Okay. We didn't even talk uh, Nike, Weiss, today. What are your expectations? We've got 20 seconds left in the program. Retail environment's soft. And so I think that there's a chance they say, hey, you know what? We're going on sale a lot of items and get back to where they should be in inventory. Got China, uh, obviously a big part of that story, big which part. we'll get some more information on, too. All right. I'll see everybody in a few hours in overtime. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.